Hello, this is Mike Van Meter. Welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And the podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And so today we're going to be talking about lies. And this is a very interesting podcast. I know you're going to enjoy it and uh, get a lot out of it. Um, you know, I get asked this question a lot about recovery. Um, you know, as, as you as you know, when you were caught up in uh, in addiction, whether it's a process addiction, whether it's a chemical addiction, and by process addiction, for those that don't know, that's a, an addiction that you have where you're not actually putting a chemical into your body, but your actions create uh, biochemical changes in your brain. For example, anorexia nervosa, um, bulimia, exercise addiction, gaming addiction, gambling addiction, those types of addictions. So it could be that, and then of course the chemical addictions as well. But what is a historic marker of addiction is lies. And if you are someone that's a, a, an addict or if you know somebody that's an addict, then you know this. You know that people will look right at you and lie to your face about what they're doing, even though it is painfully obvious that they are using. It's painfully obvious that they are using. And there's a lot of physiology behind that. Um, I, I'm of the belief that people that are in the midst of their addiction actually don't understand that they're lying. You remember, um, addiction is a disease of both the body and the brain. And it's the only disease that tells you that you don't have it. Now, if you are fortunate enough to get to the point to where you are in recovery, lies are a hallmark of early addiction. And so, again, not only are you lying to others, but at this point, when you get into into recovery, the hallmark is that you begin to lie to yourself. And so today's topic is we're going to be talking about the lies that people tell and the lies that we tell to one another and, more importantly, what we tell ourselves. Because, after all, until you decide that you want to get well, until you in your body, in your soul, decide that you want to get well. You're not going to get well. And so today we have a guest, and our guest is Frank Runnels. Now, a um, little background on Frank from my perspective, and then I'll have uh, Frank introduce himself. Uh, I was an instructor at the FBI Academy for about six and a half years, and Frank was uh, another instructor at the Academy along with me. And we all had different subjects that we taught. And uh, Frank's specialty was statement analysis statement analysis. So he also taught inter, um, uh, interviewing and interrogation and then statement analysis in dealing with lies and how you can detect lies in people. Frank also has his own podcast called Lies People Tell, and you can get that on any platform where you can get or wherever you listen to you, uh, uh, podcast yourself, you can, you can listen to Frank, and it's called Lies People Tell. But Frank's been a friend for a long time, and we, we've done a lot of work together, and I just thought that this was an appropriate subject because I have, in the last month or so since COVID has, has been around, been dealing with people that are either relapsing or are trying to get into recovery and can't get into treatment centers because of uh, COVID. And so I'm dealing with this quite a bit, and Frank and I were talking the other day about how, how people lie. And um, just based on Frank's specialty, I just thought this would be a good topic for today. So with that, Frank is here with us. Frank, welcome. Hey, thank, thank you, Mike. It's good to be here. Yeah, tell the audience a little bit about what you do and who you are. 
Well, uh, retired FBI agent. I uh, was in the FBI over 20 years and uh, worked criminal matters pretty much my whole career uh, and uh, did a lot of interviewing and interrogation and got very uh, interested in the process and uh, the communications art. And as you know, when you're dealing with people, especially as a law enforcement officer, you're lied to all the time. Every day, someone's lying to you. And you sort of get used to it and get immune to it. But at some point, you stop and say to yourself, okay, I know they're not telling me the truth, but I really don't know why. And I always ask myself that question because I kind of knew, but I didn't know, which sort of gets, set me on a journey of learning more about detection of deception and how people lie or are deceptive and the words they use in the methodology. So when I went to the FBI Academy, went there to teach interview and interrogation, but then I ended up teaching statement analysis, and uh, which has led me to now that uh, I'm retired from the Bureau, I still use statement analysis, and I help uh, different companies dealing with uh, you know investigations they're doing that may be involving product liability or something like that and help them you know understand how someone is being deceptive when they're given a statement so you know that's kind of where i'm at at this point oh great and well um one of the things that i have noticed in your podcast and it's a fantastic podcast is that although you designed that course or you taught the course for law enforcement you are law enforcement and you're teaching to law enforcement th this has a large application. I mean, it has an application to everybody. It's not just law enforcement, correct? Absolutely. This, And I've tried to take what I learned and how I applied it in law enforcement and investigations and apply that to everyday life because people are lied to every day by someone. They're being deceived by someone. And I just thought that this knowledge has been given to me for some reason, and I want to be able to use it for the good of people. So that's why I started the podcast to sort of show people like when you're on the job or you're working with someone, how the methodology I use on criminal statements can still be applied to interactions in an HR function, or you're interviewing someone for a job, or you're talking to your kids, or you're talking to someone you've hired to do some work. People will be deceptive and lie to you the same way as any bad guy in, in a criminal investigation. You just have to know how to detect or pick out the, the red flags or the telltale signs that they're lying to you. Right, and so uh, so today in our discussion, it's a bit of a twist, isn't it? I mean, what, the, the family members and the, the co-workers and the, our loved ones, when they are in the midst of addiction, uh, we, know, we know they're lying to us. I mean, when, when you have your loved one that comes home and they're they've obviously been drinking because you can just tell and, uh, you know, maybe they're slurring their words, bloodshot eyes, or you can just smell it on them. And you look at them and you say, hey, honey, you, you've been drinking again. And your, your loved one says, well, no. What, what makes you think that? I mean, I mean that's kind of obvious to us. Sometimes it's not so obvious because there are certain addictions that uh, we, we don't have the characteristic signs of bloodshot eyes, behavior, uh, or maybe even the smell. But um, so what I, what I really am focused on in people that are in what we call the contemplative stage of 
uh, recovery. That means they, they've made that decision that they want to get well, or maybe they're in the pre-contemplative stage of getting well. Oftentimes, we tell ourselves a lot of lies. And, you know, since I've known you, Frank, I know that in my own life, I, I begin to see in my own mind when I'm not being honest with myself. And, and it's funny because when you point it out, you become conscious of it. And I know that after uh, I went through your class, the one that you taught, and listening to your podcast, that you you notice it in other people. The, the things that you talk about become obvious when you listen to a speech that somebody's giving or listening to a reporter. Uh, but, you know, again, for our, today's application, it is for ourselves and for our, our loved ones. And so, Frank, um, if you would, can you maybe just give us a highlight of what are the different types of ways that people lie? Just kind of like the maybe the big picture starting out. How do people lie? Well, let me let me start with a baseline of people lie. You know, when you when you think of a lie, that means you can either lie by omission, meaning you leave out information, you're leaving out pertinent facts, you're not telling the whole story, or by commission, you're telling a fabricated story, a lie. You are intentionally telling something that's not true to deceive someone. That doesn't happen nearly as often as the lies by omission, because that involves much more of deception. And that's kind of the my, my playground is the area of deception, because people, as you said in your example, People will be deceptive because of a lot of different reasons, and many times not because they're nefarious or they're trying to hurt someone. Many times they're deceptive because they're trying to protect someone, either themselves or someone else's feelings. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. They know they should have done something or they know they shouldn't have done something, and they don't really want to admit it or have to deal with the fallout or the uh, the the response to whatever the behavior is. So they're deceptive. And the example you just gave, when someone comes home, they've been drinking, and you can smell it on them, you ask them, have you been drinking? And they say, no, well, now they're lying. But are they? why are they being deceptive? I mean, are they trying to hurt you, or are they just trying to protect themselves and to maintain a, a certain level of face-saving uh, position? So that's the playground. Now, where where do we uh, look at deceptive language? Well, when I do a, a statement, when I analyze a statement, I go through 18 separate steps, uh, looking from very broad and general down to very granular in nature, all the way down to the adjectives and the adverbs, and do they use the or a, and those type of things. I get very, very much into the weeds, but for the purposes of our conversation, I think it's probably sufficient to talk about three or four very broad-based deceptive techniques people use. And the first one in the situation we're talking about here would be, I think, the telltale sign of using equivocation and negation. What you could call waffle words and uh, trying to minimize or downplay their culpability. So a waffle word and equivocation is when people answer with a maybe or a sorta or a kinda, that's uh, an equivocation. That's sort of giving yourself 
some wiggle room. To the best of my knowledge, as retired law enforcement officers, we've all testified many times, and we will throw in the words to the best of my recollection, to the best of my knowledge. We want to give ourselves a little bit of leeway just in case we're not 100% correct. Now, is that being deceptive? In a broad sense, yes, it is. But are you doing it for a bad reason? No, you're not. Same thing in this. If someone comes home and they have a like a gambling problem, and you ask him, well, where have you been, Jim? And uh, he's been at the, the casino when he should have been at work. He took off the afternoon and went to the casino. And he answers, well, you know, just around. Now, that's an equivocation. And it's not answering the question. Now, what is around? Where Where is around? Either you were at work or you weren't at work. And if you weren't at work, where were you? Right? So that's the very broad base. So that's the first thing I'll look for is when there are equivocations or the answer a question with not answering a question, but making a, telling you what they didn't do or what they wouldn't do. You know, like, if you ask them, say, back to Jimmy and his gambling problem, uh, well, where were you this afternoon? You know, I can't believe you would ask me something like that. No, that's a negation because he's using can't. Anything with no or not would be a negation. I can't believe you'd ask me that thing. I would never, ever ask you something like that. So it's a counter accusation plus a negation. Mm. Has he still answered the question? Absolutely not. But at this point, you know that there's a problem because they're being deceptive because they're not answering the question. They're using equivocation, waffle words, and they're doing the counter accusations using the negation. Yeah. And that would be the big, the first big thing I would look for. Yeah. Now, how um, when when it comes to and that's when you're you're telling your loved one when you're you're confronted, but in in early recovery when someone decides maybe they want to get help or as i always say they they want to fix what they what they have when they have a back problem everybody in early recovery has a back problem meaning i want to get well i don't necessarily want to get well i just want you off of my back whether you're a boss a spouse the court law enforcement or whatever the case may be so you know frank how would that apply to yourself you know how how would then would you be convincing yourself that this is not a problem, even though it well, clearly is. Well, we lie to ourselves many times, and we've all done that. Even, even anytime we have a problem, whether it's an addiction problem or something we have the power to fix, but yet we choose not to fix, we will lie to ourselves and say, well, it's not that big a deal. It's not that bad. Everyone else does it. We justify and start rationalizing our behavior, which is, in a sense, using extraneous information. In the world of statement analysis, extraneous information is anything that doesn't answer the question directly that's been asked, or we use it as a justification of our actions or behaviors. In this situation, we're using extraneous information to justify our actions and behavior by self-deceiving. And that's one of the keys and one of the reasons why I like to to teach this stuff is not only do you learn how to detect when someone else is being deceptive, but you also, as you said in the opening, 
learn when you're being deceptive to yourself or mm-hmm. you're using deceptive language, either with your interaction with someone else or even with yourself. We all do self-talk, even when we don't realize it. We have an internal dialogue and we do convince ourselves many times because we want to believe I really don't look that bad when you're, you're you know, grossly overweight or I didn't really drink that much. I can drive home even though you know you can't, but mm-hmm. you're convincing yourself you're lying to yourself and, you know, everyone does it. I work hard. I deserve to do this. Why can't I spend, you know, a little time at the track, you know, throwing a little money away. I got, I got some extra money this month. So, you know, why can't I have a little fun? I deserve mm-hmm. it. Once mm-hmm. again, you're lying and deceiving yourself because you've got some bigger issues. Cause the thing is, is that is not the problem. That's just a symptom of a bigger problem. That's right. When you, when you're deceiving yourself, that's truly just a symptom of a bigger problem that you've got going on. And that's where you need to start becoming a little more self-aware what is the really the, the problem you're deceiving yourself of? Yeah, and that's a very good point, uh, because those that are listening, what you have to understand, because I think a lot of people don't do this. You know, Frank, I, I hear quite I hear this the following statement quite a bit. Mike, I went to AA and it didn't work, or I went to celebrate recovery and it didn't work, or smart recovery, whatever your program is, whatever program you chose to go to. And you you went and you kept drinking, drugging, or doing whatever your addiction is, and you continue to do that. So your conclusion is it doesn't work. Well, what a lot of people don't understand is, and I'm I'm just going to stick. I'm just going to use one example. Let's just use AA for example. I'm, you know, you may have all kinds of different programs that you're trying, but I'm just going to use this one for example purposes only. Um, you have to understand that Alcoholics Anonymous does not get you sober. It does not get you sober. It keeps you sober, and that's a subtle but yet very distinct difference. You get sober by either doing it yourself on your own, and if it's alcohol, I don't recommend that because that can be quite dangerous if you do that. You can have a stroke or a seizure. Be very, very careful with that. Or you go to treatment, and you stop drinking. What the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step program is, is it gives you a program to keep you from starting drinking and drugging and that's a very big difference so those that say that they went in it and it didn't fix them um, that that's a that's a misconception as it is and so when you um, what you hear from a lot of people then is then they just rationalize why they are not going to go do that anymore and they try to do things on their own and so I know from teaching interviewing and interrogation myself that we have this concept of known as RPM or rationalize project and minimize so um, and there's a lot of that going on isn't there in in with people that need to be in recovery RPM that whole idea um, what do you think of that absolutely and go back to your statement you just said you, you hear over and over again I, t- I went and it didn't work right okay, so so what they're doing is they're using it to depersonalize the program okay they're not they're not calling it by uh, what it really is they're they're depersonalizing by calling it and they're using the negation to tell you what didn't work not what did work right that's a, much, a good point a much, and when you hear that you know that they 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 have a negative uh, 
conception of the program itself, the 12-step the program. They're not taking any ownership of it. They're trying to distance themselves from it, and they're telling you what they didn't do or couldn't do, not what they did or they tried. That's right. So, and it's, it's much more of a, a negative uh, side of the mentality as versus you know, I tried it and I see some good parts, but it didn't, you know, I didn't do as well as I could have. I didn't follow through. I didn't do the steps. I did, you know, it, they're not taking any ownership of it. So that's when I hear that statement, that's what it's telling me. I automatically know, okay, they, they, they went there, they didn't like what they heard and they said, I don't want to be part of this because I'm just not mentally ready to do this and I'm going to use extraneous information to explain explain away rationalize why it wouldn't work why it did without really giving you an example of well, why didn't it work what part of this didn't work for you type of thing right yeah it, it's almost like they, they expect this to work through osmosis, right? You know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, this idea that, you know, I can put the book underneath my pillow at night and just through osmosis, the information from that book will go to my head. And, it, you know, I went, I heard about it, and I didn't like it. And so that would be the rationalized part of it, right? They rationalize that. And then now you start bleeding into the projection part, the P part, RPM, rationalize, mm -hmm. and then the project, right? Because I hear this a lot, Frank, too. I went to the meeting, and um, I, I didn't like the people there were, um, you know, I knew somebody that I that I know. I mean, I saw somebody that I know, so I don't go back. Or in the law enforcement community, I hear this with police officers a lot and agents that go to meetings. I went there, and I saw somebody that I arrested that was that was a big one or I went <clears throat> and I just didn't like those people they were using too much profanity um, it was you know there were homeless people there there were you know it seemed like you know people there just you know weren't at my level you know I, I hear name it I, I've heard of all and that would be the project and projection part would it not Frank the P part yeah. Right, and then you add. So I'm projecting the, onto instead of focusing on me, I'm focusing on on the others projecting out. And then the last part is the M, the minimization. They will then transition to minimizing their problem and to try to say, well, you know, really, you know, I I'm good. I can handle this on my own. They minimize how, how what drastic situation they're in because they don't want to deal with what they have to do. They don't want to have to do the hard work. They don't want to be uncomfortable. They don't want to open up. They don't want to change bad enough. They want to change, but not bad enough. So then they start minimizing. So they'll rationalize, they'll project why they can't do it onto something or someone else that they have no control over. So it's not my fault that I can't change that. And then they minimize, saying, "Well, and I'm really, I really, I'm fine. I can handle this on my own." Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? And and we know they can't because once again, they're being, they're lying to themselves. You know, and Frank, let me just give you a little scenario that was is very common uh, with with me, and. In fact, it's so common, I almost expect this when I start working with someone new. And my work in the addiction world began when I was with the FBI, as a matter of fact. And I was an EAP, Employee Assistance Program, peer counselor. 
And it, for those that don't know this, but in the FBI, they can mandate you know people to come see the EAP counselor. Uh, that's usually if if there's a disciplinary issue, maybe somebody got a DUI, or there was a an event in the workplace, or uh, you know a, a supervisor maybe concerned about an employee. You know different different scenarios, but they can they can mandate. Now they can't demand that I tell them what's going on in the session, but they can mandate that you come and, and talk to somebody like me. And I got. Uh, you know, in the FBI, um, we didn't have a lot of drug problems. Uh, not that it didn't happen. It, it did happen on occasion, but mainly alcohol. That's mainly what I got. And the conversation would go a lot like this, Frank. Um, people would come to me and they would say, all right, I have to uh, have to see you. Well, wh- well why, why do you need to come and see me? Well, my boss told me that I have an alcohol problem. And, and, and so li- just listen to that right there, Frank. My boss thinks I have an alcohol problem, and they and they told me to come and see you. And so then what they would do is they would say, well, do, ask me, do, do you think, Mike, that I have an alcohol problem? And I always found that that was very interesting because and, – and I have found over the years, Frank, that um, it, it's kind of difficult for me just to say yes or no to people when it comes from me. Like, for example, I found, yes, yes, Frank, I think you have an alcohol problem. I found it, it just goes on deaf ears. So what I have found to be more effective is just to start asking them a series of questions and then get them to come to the same conclusion that I already made in my mind. So it would work like this. Um, Mike, do you think I have an alcohol problem? And I would say, uh, do you think that you have an alcohol problem? And then they, I would just get sort of the blank stare, and well, I'm, I'm not sure. I wish, I wish I could quit, but you know, I, you know, I, I, I know that I can, and maybe I should, but you know, apparently my boss thinks that I should, and so the way, and we'll, we'll break this, break this whole statement down, Frank, here in a minute. But then I'll follow it up with, well, um, are you having a problem with your boss? Do, do you and your boss not get along? Well. No, or maybe maybe they say that they are. Yeah, maybe I think my boss is targeting me, and uh, or or the answer might be no to that. Either way, I've I've had both of those answers. All right, so um, do you think they're trying to uh, uh, target you, or do you think that they're trying to help you? And then and this is where it gets a lot of of people. I would say, um, do you think that your boss, or I would I would ask, does your boss send everybody? in the office to go see the EAP peer counselor? And the answer is usually no. Are you the first one? And, and it would be, well, I think so. And then I would say, so do you think normal social drinkers get sent in to see the EAP counselor? Because then I would also, in that in the course of the conversation, say, what does your, your spouse think or your, your significant other? What do they think? Well, they've wanted me to stop drinking for years. Okay, well, do normal social drinkers even have that conversation? Do you think that occurs? And the answer is usually no. Well, what do your children think if they have children? Yeah, my children would like me to stop. So do normal social drinkers. So the the person that just has one glass of wine a week, or maybe they party on New Year's Eve, you know, so if you drink one glass of wine a week or just one glass with dinner, do they typically get sent to the EAP peer counselor to talk about their alcohol? And then usually by the end of that conversation, they're kind of like, yeah, I see where you're, you're, you're coming from. Now, that doesn't mean that they're ready. It doesn't mean, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. But, um, you know, can you kind of break down that whole – so from a statement analysis point of view, can you maybe explain to our listeners what, you know, 
what that is and why that sort of line of questioning is effective, Frank? Well, when when I finish a criminal statement, say I, I've done the analysis and I will come up with a whole series of issues with a statement, like they've changed how they refer to someone in the statement from the beginning to the end, it changes and like they no longer re- refer to the person as my wife, they only refer to them as Sandy, you know, and, and so they've given up the familial bond somewhere there. So that will be a question in my mind. Or they've used way too many equivocations on something that doesn't require a lot of equivocation. It happened, it was pretty straightforward. Or they used a lot of extraneous information to tell me what happened would give me very little detail of what actually what happened. So with these different issues with the statement, I will create what I call amplification questions, meaning I will then go back to them and using their words say, could you tell me more about this? Can you explain this? I don't understand this. So that's what you're kind of doing here. You're using questions to not so much to elicit information as to cause them to have to make some admissions if they are answering the questions honestly. Mm-hmm. And which leads them to a, a conclusion. It's, it's somewhat like the Socratic method of teaching where you're asking questions which causes them to make uh, you know, steps in logic that leads them to the logical conclusion that yes, they, they have a problem or yes, they need some help dealing with this issue. That, that's what, what you're doing in the world of statement analysis. That's where you're taking it. And that's what I do too is after I've done the statement, I'm going to sit down and talk to them using their words and ask them to explain it. And the more they have to explain, they'll either come to the conclusion they have to come up with the truth or we're going to know that they're being incredibly deceptive. And at that point, then we may have to pivot from an interview to an interrogation, and which is a whole different you know, subject unto itself. Right. And it, and it also uh, ex- sort of exposes the flaws in their argument. And then yes. and instead of me explaining to them why their argument makes no sense, I actually put them in a position where they have to explain to me why A does not connect to B. Because I know that A, B, A does not connect to B, right? So the logic behind it. But it's one thing for me to say it, but them having to say it in their own mind exposes the lie to themselves, correct? And, and that's right. what – now, the difference between a, a, a criminal investigation and what we're doing here, because, I mean, that's not what we're, – we're, we're here to help people, right? Uh, what it is is I'm trying to get you know their, their brain to recognize – that this makes no sense because as i've said before and i started out this program and saying the weird thing about addiction and what the audience needs to understand is that the most important person in this whole process that is being lied to is that person so when your loved one is not making sense to you it, it, it it's because they have convinced themselves that what they're telling you is correct. And the weird thing about addiction, Frank, is when somebody, when an addict tells you what the, the lie, 
they actually believe they're telling you the truth. That's what they believe. And, and it's because, and there's a lot of biochemistry that's involved in there because uh, in previous podcasts, I've talked about how when you drink alcoholically, just talking about alcohol here, for example, um, there's vitamins and minerals that are not even absorbed into your system, uh, main, particularly the uh, B series 1, 3, 6, and 12 uh, ser- serotonin levels uh, drop off, GABA levels drop off, all these things. And when they're diminished, cause your brain to not function uh, properly and really does affect your prefrontal cortex, which has to do with decision making. And, and that's all out of whack. And ironically, Frank, what happens is when we get people into long-term recovery and all those levels go back up and, and they, they have stabilized their um, biochemistry in their body, the very same people, and it's very common, very common to go to 12-step meetings and, and listen to people that have years of recovery and have them tell their story of their drinking days. And they will comment afterwards that when they tell the story, they feel like they're talking about somebody else. They don't feel like they're talking about themselves. That's very, very common. So, um, you know, I'll just remind the listeners that, again, when, when these people are telling you these lies, they may actually believe those lies. So do you ever see that, Frank? Um, and maybe maybe elaborate on those differences and, you know, what can you do about that? Well, not only that, they will, uh, I, I would suspect, and I could be wrong, but I suspect that many times they'll convince themselves that they're actually trying to do someone, something somewhat noble by lying to their significant others or other people in the false belief that they're actually protecting them and they're, yeah. they're, yeah. they're trying to save them from pain. And, uh, and once again, it's a self-delusion thing. They're lying to themselves by thinking that. And I've seen that in, uh, you know, criminal cases that I've worked where, you know, you've got the goods on the guy, you know, he's done it. You, and you want him to give you a confession because at least then he can get credit for taking responsibilities and confessing to the crime. And they will, I've seen where they, they will self-delude them. They'll, they'll self-delude themselves into thinking that if I don't give this up, I'm actually helping other people, whether it's their cohorts in crime, their family or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. this weird dynamic where you get so in depth in your own mind, in your own, you know, world that you lose all sorts of perspective of just what any normal common sense person would say, well, that's crazy. In their mind, it's not crazy because they're, they're at a level, they're in a, a world that isn't straight. They're living in a world that's a little off kilter. And in a world that is a little off kilter and you're being a little off kilter, Everything's actually normal at that point. Yeah. You know? it, it's a strange thing. And and on the flip side of that, and I've always said, and you hear this at 12-step meetings, that this program of recovery is about brutal honesty. Brutal yeah. honesty. And the ironic thing, and there's a parallel between criminal investigations and, and how we operate in recovery, is the ironic part is once the truth comes out, and I mean the the truth, no more hiding no more nothing when the truth comes out it's almost like a release and you've noticed that uh you know in in criminal investigations i've done and i know you're the same way frank it's like so much work to get the person to the point to where they will finally just 
admit to what was done. But then haven't you noticed that once they admit what is done, then it just starts to flow out. Like the whole truth just starts to flow out, like, almost like a relief that, that that was done. And I've noticed that in recovery, but it takes work in recovery. Uh, I remember in the early days of my own recovery, I was so brutal about the honesty that it would it would almost take on a ridiculous form. Where, For, for example, let's say I went to the supermarket and I uh, buy something and the cashier gives me change and maybe he or she gave me, you know, four cents too much. Like, meaning I was overpaid, like, by four cents. I remember distinctly one time getting home and realizing that I was given four cents too much change, and I went back to the store to give it back to the clerk. And, of course, they look at me like, are you serious? You came all the way back to give me that. But that's when you know that somebody really wants to get well when they go to that extreme, you know. But at the at the time, in working with a sponsor, I had decided that honesty meant honesty, and brutal honesty is brutal, and I was going to be brutally honest, and that's, that's what I was doing. But um, have you noticed that, Frank, that once you finally get to that point to where the truth comes out and they tell you that, then you start to make the progress, and that's where the true progress begins. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's like the breaking of the dam, and it's almost a, a certain level of relief comes over you because – to lie, whether you're lying to someone or you're even lying to yourself, it creates a cognitive load and it becomes a very stressful lifestyle because lying and being untruthful is stressful. We are taught from the time we're little children, lying's bad. Bad people lie. You will be punished if you lie. Only negative input it, no one gr- raises their small child and congratulates them on being a good liar <laughs> or teaches true. them how to be a good liar we are socialized to be honest and to tell the truth and lying is has always been you know related to negative type of you know things outcomes so when they finally stop lying and tell the truth, they confess, the dam breaks, there's a level of relief because suddenly the stress is off them. They don't have to put this facade up. They don't have to keep the stories going. They don't have to try to figure out how they're going to answer the next question without looking bad or giving themselves away, yet not losing faith. Because you're lying because you don't want to get in trouble. You don't want to let someone down. You don't want to look stupid. You don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want them mad at you. You don't want to be punished. All of these things are going on at the same time. That creates such a cognitive load that I've seen many times when someone's lying, they get sleepy because their brain is almost, to protect itself, starts shutting down because they're so stressed out and they have such a cognitive load that it lulls them into, you know, falling asleep. They just really, their their brain is sort of like, I have to protect ourselves, and they start shutting down because yeah. of the stress. So once, once they finally break that dam, it's like you can't get them to stop talking. They start confessing the things that you didn't even know about. You start hearing things that you might not want to know about, you know, type of thing. 
Yeah, and as an FBI agent, when you're interviewing somebody, now you never know, want to tell them that, like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> you always want to make it sound like you knew that all along, when in reality you didn't. And and you know you're right, Frank, because uh, the the thing about addiction is, and, and I know a lot of people stress over this. In fact, I was just out in Ohio uh, at a program, and I was working with some people, and I and I had some discussions with people that are struggling right now. And when I was really talking to them about their life, right, you know, because I really want to talk about, you know, what what is this doing in your life? S- the stress that you're talking about was a big part of it. That was a really big part of it. For example, um, the the folks that I was working with, you know, when they're they're drinking and they're drinking alcoholically, um, you know, you got to go to work the next day. And I have people, and I, and this was true of my own case, where you know you were always fearful of being discovered, right? Like that that fear that uh, you know, even if you're not drinking during the day, let, let's say you you drink at night, but if you drink enough, you you know damn well that when you show up to work the next day, people at a minimum can smell it, right? Maybe you're still under the influence. That's that's the case in some cases, but if not, they can still smell it on you, right? And so you know, people are telling me how they would hide, you know, go into other offices, and they would just avoid people for for a long period of time and that becomes very very stressful you know knowing every single day you've got this secret going on in your life and and that you're hiding it from from other people um conversely when you get into recovery and that's one of the beauties of, of recovery is it doesn't matter how early in the morning the meeting is it doesn't you know people can sit next to me i can be around them i can uh, be in front of them and have absent. Now you might have other <laughs> you might have other issues with me. Maybe you don't like. Who knows? But I do know this. I do know that the one issue you're not going to have with me is smelling alcohol on me, right? Right. And so it's a, right. so conversely, it's a freedom. You know, once you get to that point. Absolutely, absolutely. And I can, you know, for me, I was a smoker uh, for twenty plus years, and uh, I quit smoking in 1989. But I, up to then, I started smoking when I was 12 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. I was a, a kid in East Tennessee where we grew tobacco. Tobacco was our cash crop. Everyone used tobacco of some form, whether you dip, chewed, or smoked. Everyone did. There was no stigma to it, okay? But as you got older and as time went on, it became much more of a stigma to be a smoker. Even And I was in the Army when I quit. And when I joined the Army, it wasn't a big deal. But the longer I was in, by year 10, it was a big deal. No one, I mean, smoking had been so demonized, rightfully so, that you were somewhat being ostracized if you smoked. So when I quit, there was a true, it was hard to do. I quit cold turkey. Uh, But, you know, six months afterwards, I w- there was a sense of relief because that was one monkey you never ever had to worry about being on your back again. You never had to worry about finding time to go have a smoke, uh, having anyone look at you sideways because you did smoke, smelling like you smoke, having smoke in your clothes. I mean, all of the negative things that go with it. So yeah, there's a there's a certain amount of freedom. Because you walk out there and say, I never have to worry about this again. This is something mm-hmm. that's behind me. Now, yeah. it's truly never behind you. As as you know, uh, when you you have an addiction, it's never truly behind you. I could start smoking again easily with no problem because I'll never lose that desire for, for a cigarette. But I don't do it because I don't want to. 
but I could, you know, I could pick it up again easily if I wanted, if I, if I so choose. It wouldn't be sort of like, oh, I'll never, I don't want to do this again. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I could do it again because you never truly lose it. You always have to be aware. You know? No, and that, that's actually another lie that we tell ourselves in recovery, and that is that at some point, at some point, I can go back to using normally. That, that right. it's some that that's a that's a hallmark of all addicts. All addicts right. is you know what for you other people out there, and that's the projection part, right? For you people, maybe you can't do this, but I could. I'm different than the rest of you. That's a hallmark right. of addiction is that I'm different than the rest of you, and at some point I can go back, and and that's where many many relapses come from. Is we begin again that lying to ourselves begin to think that this thing called addiction went away, this disease went away, and that I can start using normally or socially again. And that that's a lie that, that we tell ourselves. And then we know what happens after that. So that's the why we, we, we cannot. And, and so in long-term, and actually I think in long-term recovery is that's the real danger part. That lying to yourself is the real danger part because the a relapse doesn't, you know, it's not like you're driving down the street one day and you're in your car and you pass a 7-Eleven and you're like, oops, I don't know this. The car has a brain of its own and it turned in on its own in the parking lot of this uh, 7-Eleven and uh, an automatic, and the next thing I knew there was a six pack of beer with me and I had no, it just happened. I don't know how the hell it happened. That's not how it works, right? Uh, it is It is a seed that starts, it's planted, and it begins to grow, and you, and then you continue to deceive yourself and lie to yourself, and the next thing you know, the relapse occur. But every relapse starts as a thought in the mind, in that deception, right? Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, does that make sense, Frank? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we we lie to ourselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, and that's part of uh, becoming more self-aware. Uh, and to know when you are not being honest with yourself and being honest with other people. You're, you're exactly right. Right. Well, this is good stuff, and I know that this is going to really help uh, people out there, you know, our listeners uh, to this program. And, Frank, I really appreciate your time in doing this. And, um, you know, so, again, lies people tell. Um, Frank does this. It's once a week, correct, Frank? You put it out once a week? Yeah, I do. It comes out every Wednesday. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, if your listeners would you know, check it out, I think uh, it's what we try to do there is I go through different aspects of the language and explain how it's used for deceptive purposes and try to give some examples. And then I always try to use a statement from a criminal case. Some of them are famous, some are you know not as famous. Uh, and to use what I taught to show how it's being applied in that statement. So you can use that in your everyday life. You know, when you're talking to your kids or you talk to your spouse or your boss or a coworker, we all tell the same deceptive stories. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, what context we're using it in. So, yeah, it's interesting. This, this one coming up, the next one is I'm going to be doing the Casey Anthony statement from Florida. Yep. And showing how when she was, you know, the statement she gave and how she used that to just try to move the story along without giving a lot of details. And as you, everyone recalls, you know, I mean, her daughter was missing 
for a month before she ever notified the cops that, her, that the kid was missing. So I think it's kind of an interesting story and in how she uses these, you know, text bridges, if you will, to try to move the story along and make it appear like she did everything she could when obviously she did. Right. And you do some political examples. And I will tell you, once you listen to Frank's um, podcast, you will never look at a newscast or a speech again. Um, you'll, you'll, there's things in the speeches that you'll notice and you'll say, well, that's deceptive right there. And uh, it really does change the way that you look at, at language. And I really recommend that. So, again, that's called Lies People Tell uh, with Frank by Frank Runnels. And so, as I'd always like to say, I don't represent any group. I don't represent anyone other than myself. My only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what I've done because it has helped me and maybe it will help you too. So if I've said something or Frank has said something that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with it, then just discard it. But try to take some of the information that you've heard today that you can use to help other people because that's what we're trying to do. It's what we do in recovery. So with that, please visit our Facebook page, uh, Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. And let me know how I'm doing and let me know if there's any topic that you're interested in hearing. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, Again, check out Frank's um, Lies People Tell podcast by Frank Runnels, and we will see you guys soon.